Hello, hello. What's up? What's good? Ni hao, bonjour. Welcome to the Any Given Runway Show. I'm your host, Randall Carlton Green. Any Given Runway celebrates the exploration of new cultures by highlighting some of the most interesting, tenacious, and dedicated people in the world. Everyone has a story, each person a scholar. Uh, we have an unforgettable show for today with a, a one of a kind, incredibly motivating guest. Attorney Thea Arthur Duncan joins the show. Thea Arthur has one of the most amazing redemption stories I've ever heard. He's an attorney in Buffalo, New York, but his path into law was hardly linear. It's a triumphant story of decision-making and grit and grind, something on the level of Count of Monte Cristo. Thea Arthur is living proof that despite your past, dreams can still come true. His story begins as he escapes the violence of the Crips and Blood street gangs in South Central LA and the abuse of a cocaine-addicted stepfather to go back to Buffalo and perpetuate both ills by becoming a drug dealer himself. Ironically, he became a part of what had actually victimized him and his family in Los Angeles. The author mentions that he risked it all for material gains and he lived life on the edge and wound up in prison and had to change his life, persevere, make different choices to get his life back together. After three years of incarceration, he was released back into society and at times was tempted by his old lifestyle, but he chose a different route. It was a complicated journey filled with endless slings and arrows. He encountered many disappointments, close calls, and he succeeded and became who he is today, an attorney, but as he describes it, a felon attorney which is not a phrase you hear every day. On today's episode, The Arthur shares with us those difficult days growing up and how he thought returning to Buffalo would keep him away from the pressures of the streets. The Arthur also shares with us the numerous close calls that he had and the people who helped him along the way, including some of the very same people who had helped put him behind bars, ended up assisting his career later on in life. Ah, what can you say? A felon turned attorney. It is a remarkable story. He documents it in his book, Felon Attorney. It's an unbelievable story. I love tales of redemption, and there might be no finer one than the Arthur's story. Thrilled for you guys to meet him, so let's go ahead and bring on attorney and author and motivational speaker, the Arthur Duncan, and let's learn. Felon attorney, it's a complicated redemption story, but it's impactful, the story of also decision-making. So can you lay that yeah. out for me, the, the story of your, of your life? Um, yeah, where to begin? Yeah. how much time we got. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, childhood, uh, I was born in Los Angeles. Um, my mother's out there. Um, my father went the way to Vietnam. So my mother was out in Los Angeles kind of struggling by herself. So she sent me back to Buffalo where she was from. Um, there in Buffalo, um, my grandfather and grandmother, um, there was a lot of family there and stuff. My, my grandfather actually owned like five houses on the street with so uncles, aunts, cousins. So it was more a stable environment in Buffalo. However, you know, I mean, of course, you know, I mean, she, I would go back and forth because, you know, I miss my mother. And ironically, I did like, I did kindergarten in Buffalo, first grade in LA, second grade in Buffalo, mm. third and fourth in LA, then fifth through eighth in, in Buffalo. And then I wind up going back to LA for high school. So, you know, I miss my mother, but at the same time, I like Buffalo more than I like Los Angeles. In Los Angeles, my mother was constantly moving around. We would be in South Central, then I would go back the next year, then she would move to Inglewood. So I didn't know anybody, and every time I went back to L.A., I would go to a different school. So I didn't like it. Yeah. In Buffalo, I would be in the same neighborhood, same friends, same people. I liked it there. So but I wind up going back to L.A. for high school. Um, and that's when I got a chance to meet my father. 
Um, so me and him, we started, you know what I mean, to get to know each other. And so I wind up staying in LA all through high school. Now the thing about LA, when I went there in high school was the um, late 80s when gang violence was at, you know what I mean, its highest peak. peak yeah. So I, so I was living in the blood neighborhood in Inglewood, but I was going to school with Crips in mm. South Central. So I was supposed to wear red and around home, but then when I got to school, I was supposed to have on blue. Yeah. So then I was fighting this dynamic of trying to survive, getting on the bus and going through all these neighborhoods and stuff, just trying to survive. Um, a few times I got caught wearing the wrong color and I was able to kind of talk my way out of it, just saying that I didn't know what was going on. I was telling them I was from New York and I didn't know what was going on, so I was able to talk my way out of it. Um, however, one time, I couldn't talk my way out of it. I had on a pe- purple Lakers jacket, and a guy, he was from Watts. He was a, a Grape Street Crip. And um, he, I, was, I got on the bus after basketball practice, and he came and put a knife to my throat and made me take off my Lakers jacket on, on, the, on the bus. Um, so, you know I mean? I mean, luckily I survived. I gave him the jacket. And so I was going through that dynamic, you know what I mean? Just trying to survive on the streets. And then my home life came into shambles because my brother's father, um, he developed a drug addiction. So back then they used to call it freebasing before it was like crack and stuff. And so I remember coming home a few times and seeing the white powder and the pipe and stuff on the table, you know I mean? I didn't know what it was. I didn't know if this was about to just like tear my whole family life apart. So slowly but surely his addiction got worse and worse and he stopped going to work, then he got fired. Then he started stealing stuff off the house, the um, TVs and VCRs. This is back in the 80s when VCRs was like, cost like a thousand dollars. Oh yeah. So he would steal the VCRs and then he would, you know what I mean? He would try to, um, at first, he was still working, so he would re- replace what he was still after he had gone his drug binge. But after a while, he got fired, so he couldn't replace it. And so then my mother, um, he started abusing my mother, stealing from her. Um, like 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, he would be bamming on the windows, trying to get in. Couldn't sleep at night. Um, come home from basketball practice or school, and you know, things was gone. Um, so it got very rocky there. And, um, and then it got so bad that like he had, he owed a drug debt and, uh, the drug dealers came to the house and basically threatened him and my mother if his drug debt wasn't paid. So, um, after that, he got some family members pay his drug debt and he wind up leaving LA. And so at that point, you know, I mean, Los Angeles had a bitter taste in my mouth. So I graduated from high school in LA. Um, came back to Buffalo just to kind of visit, to kind of get away from L.A. and wind up staying. And the ironic part was that I got back to Buffalo and I was hanging out with some friends. And we went to go play some basketball and and we left from the, um, the um, park, went down to the corner, was kind of just talking some stuff, drinking some beers. And um, this old old guy comes over to one of my friends and asks him, asks him for a dime. And um, I'm thinking to myself, why is this old guy asking my friend for you know ten cent a dime? Yeah, yeah. You know, what I mean, I, it didn't dawn, it didn't yeah. dawn on me. Yeah. And so my friend, he went around to the alley, came back, 
gave the guy a package and the guy gave him $10. And it just like hit me, like smacked me in the face, like, oh, wow. You know what I mean? You guys are hustling, selling drugs. Yeah. My friend was like, um, yeah, we, we getting this money. You, you, know, you need to get this money. And, and I'm like, I left Los Angeles after all I went through in Los Angeles to kind of get away and everything that happened to me there, come back to Buffalo where I start hanging around my friends. And these are guys I knew from like kindergarten. Yeah. So I've known these guys 15, 20 years and leave that scenario, come back to Buffalo and get thrust right back into it. And now my close friends are the ones that sell me drugs. And, you know, I told myself I would never sell any drugs. And my grandfather was a pastor and, and, you know, it was something that I would never do, but it's like, these are the guys I hang around with. And, and so I just, I kept hanging around with them, um, rode into community college, tried to go to school, tried to work little jobs and stuff. And at the same time, I had this pull from them, like, like, yo, come sell these drugs, get some of this money. It's easy. It's easy. And, um, you know, they would buy me stuff or we go to the mall. They would buy me stuff and they're living this life and they're hanging out late at night. And I got to get up because I'm working as a bus aide or working in, in the mall and stuff. And they're like, don't go to work. I'll pay you what you, whatever you, you make tomorrow. I'll, I'll just give it to you. Don't go to work. Yeah. And so, you know, I, mean, I still try to, you know what I mean? Say no. And I wind up having my oldest son. So now I got a mouth to feed. And then, I, then I got my friends, they're buying my son stuff that I couldn't buy. So um, I, I wind up this, I gave in a little bit. I, so I say, and I start selling some marijuana. I start selling weed. So, you know, that allowed me to still hang out with them, not have to go to work and make some money. And I feel like that was a lesser evil. So I started um, selling, selling marijuana. I did that for a while, probably about six months. And then one day, um, but while I was selling, they were still like, okay, that's, that's pennies. You need to come over here and start selling this crack, get this real money. But I, you know, I, mean, I kept telling them no. And one day I wind up like losing all my money gambling. So I was on the corner shooting dice, lost all my money gambling, went home, got the rest of my money, came back to the corner, just lost everything. So now I'm like, what I'm gonna do, I need some money. So I go to my friend, I'm like, loan me some money so I can re-up, get some marijuana, and you know what I mean, so I can go back selling weed. He like, no, you know what I mean, you need to, you know what I mean, sell this crack, I got you, you know what I'm saying, you, you should need to leave that alone, that little pennies yeah. and stuff. And, and I told him no, then a couple of days went by, didn't have no money, things were due, bills were due, went back to him again. And, and um, basically, I gave in. So he showed me everything. He showed me how to bag it up. He took me to the, to the guy that would cook it up, took me up to the corner, basically, um, you know, and I started selling crack. And it's like, and I always say the first time I, you know, I, mean, I sold some crack, I felt like I sold myself to the devil. And, but the funny part was that that only lasted until the next person came, came and bought some more crack. Yeah. Then I started justifying what I was doing. Well, if they're not going to get it from me, they're going to get it from somebody else. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, then I had all these no's I wouldn't do. I wouldn't sell it to a family member or, you know what I mean, something. All these no, all these no's, stuff I said, started going off the shelf one by one. And I started mm -hmm. justifying 
everything I was doing. And basically I was like, well, at least they know, I know I'm giving them good product. I'm not lacing it with no poisons and stuff. Yeah. And so you start justifying what justifying you're doing. Everything. Yeah, yeah. everything. And so now, you know what I mean? Now you kind of, it doesn't mean nothing to you. It's something you just into. And, but all the while I was telling myself that, you know, I'm only going to do this for, to I see this amount of money. Well, I'm just going to do this until this year is over. Cause yeah, yeah. I always said I, I was going to go back to school cause I was always smart. Uh, I was like, like real smart. Like I never studied. I always had people copying off my paper. You know what I mean? My name is the art. I was like the nerd, you know what I mean? But I didn't <laughs> want to be the nerd. Yeah. I want to be the cool kid. I wanted to play basketball. I wanted to be a rapper. You know what I'm saying? But those wasn't what I say. I call my your A game. Yeah. And like when I speak now, I tell people, find out what your A game is. And you know, pour into that. You know what I mean? There's a lot of things that you may want to do, but I mean, let's be real. You might not be that good at it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So find out what you, you're, you're best at, your A game. My A game was I was smart, but I didn't want to be smart. Again, I didn't want to be the nerd smart kid. I wanted to be the cool kid. So again, and I was hanging out with the in crowd and they were drug dealers and stuff. And those are my friends when, you know what I mean? I was really supposed to be in school. So I always said I was going to stop selling drugs and then go back to school, but I never did. And I wind up probably selling drugs um, a good eight, nine years mm -hmm. um, until I got um, indicted by the FBI. And that thing, that story was that, um, like, like I had a crew of guys that I, I, I ran with, but I met somebody out of the Bronx and um, started dealing with him on the side. And he was already um, being watched by the FBI. So his phone was tapped and um, he made it phone, me and him, they got me and him on a phone call. And so the funny part is, the phone call, like when I got indicted by the FBI, I got indicted for conspiracy and they didn't find no drugs on me, no, no crack, no nothing. It was just a phone call. The guy was already on an investigation. And as a matter of fact, the conversation I had with him was basically, I told him that I will see him tomorrow and I have something for him. That was it. And so when he took his plea, he told the, the authorities what that conversation was about. So I got arrested. Yeah. And um, and the, the guy was a friend of my cousin, so and so they arrested my cousin too and her mother because they figured they knew about what was going on, and then they also arrested my brother because um, I find out later on that my brother had got some drugs from him also. So four of my family members were caught up in my indictment: yeah. my, my little brother, my cousin who was a female, and her mother. Um, and basically, they kind of arrested the mother put pressure on my cousin, the girl, and they wanted the, the girl, my cousin, to, like, to tell on everybody, but she wouldn't tell on everybody. So I wind up um, taking a plea for 46 months. My brother took a plea for 36 months, and my cousin, the girl, she took a plea also for 46 months. And mind you, my cousin, the girl, she ain't some pebble. She just did the introduction. She knew the guy from the Bronx, but she wouldn't tell. And there was some other people in, in, in like in the community that they wanted her to tell them that she would tell. And so, you know what I mean? She, she wind up going to jail. How old are you at this point? So I, went to, I went to jail in 2000. So I was um, 31. Okay. I, was, I was 31. So um, um, I got 46 months in prison. 
And I, while I was there, um, um, basically I kind of worked on myself. Um, I wasn't a jailhouse lawyer. Everybody said, that, oh, you started <laughs> yeah. working on yeah, yeah. you in jail. Like, uh, I was just trying to survive. Yeah. Because the, the, the funny part is I went to what is called a federal prison camp. And a federal, a federal prison camp doesn't have any walks. So everybody and it's for quote unquote nonviolent offenders. So you figure, you know what I mean, it's it's safe and stuff. And they call they used to call it back in the day the country club for the white collar criminals and, and the people in the mob and stuff. But it's it's actually the opposite. Because there's no walls, it's wide open. It's like a dormitory dormitory setting. So there's no you there's no bars, like at night you don't lock in. So, you know what I mean, in, in jail, you know what I mean, you lock in, you just, it's just you and your cellmate. If you are right with your cellmate, you can get you a good night's sleep. But in a federal prison camp, it's dormitories. So you're in a dormitory setting, and the only thing that, and, and it's like beds, um, shelves, like, and then dividers. And so you can't, if you go to sleep, Anybody can come at you at any time and get at you because there you can't lock in. Yeah. So people were getting hit in the head with, with locks and socks. They was burning, they was burning people beds. I mean, it was just crazy. There was all type of drugs there because again, there was no walls. You could leave if you want to, but you know what I mean? Then you would be facing five years for escape. So, you know what I mean? So the, the people there was, most of them was drug offend. I mean, drug offenders. That was people that could be violent, but just wasn't in jail at that time for something violent. Yeah. Um. So again, it was wide open. I mean, at any time, people were getting your head split open, sleeping in the bed if you had trouble. So you couldn't. If you had trouble with somebody, you need to go see that person before you go to sleep because you're gonna wake up. You know, what I mean, they're gonna be hitting you in the head and like stumping you because again, there's no. You can't lock in. You know what I'm saying? So, and then sometimes if, if you, and then a lot of times people would do something purposely to get in trouble. So they would be sent to the hole because they knew had, they had a problem with somebody. It was either, you know what I mean? You get in trouble, you know what I mean? And the, and the COs and the Lieutenant captain send you to the hole so you can lock in at the, at the low facility, yeah. or you will have to face this dude that you got problems with. Yeah. So you would purposely step out of bounds, get yourself in trouble so you can go to the hole. So that's why I told there, I, mean, I was just trying to, trying to survive. Um, um, I got into the drug program, was not nine, nine months off my sentence. So I wind up doing about, I think, a little bit over two and a half years. Um, went to the halfway house, um, got, got out, had to do six months in the halfway house no job skills. So I get out of jail, I'm 30, 34 years old, um, high school diploma, now I'm a convicted felon, no job skills. It's like, what am I supposed to do? I mean, that's the trap. You, you, that's why the, you know, so many people go back to jail, they let you out, put you back in the same environment and say, okay, now do something different now. Yeah. Now, and then you're, now you're a convicted felon. When you know, what I mean, so now you're in the worst position that you were in before you left. So my thing was that you know I wasn't going to go back to jail. And when I got out of jail, remember, when I I got in trouble, I got in trouble outside of the gang I was running with. 
So when I got out of jail, they were still out there hustling, still getting money, like waiting for me to come back, get back into the game. And um, so I had to resist that and basically kind of separate, my, separate myself from them. Like, look, you know what I mean? I, I can't go back to jail. It's, it's not worth it. So here I was a person that was used to be driving big trucks and going out of town and spending all this money in clubs and stuff. So somebody was now catching the bus, catching the train, you know what I mean, on my own, just like I got to do it a different way. So I wind up getting a job um, um, driving a wheelchair van. And so I would pick up people in wheelchairs, take them to doctor's appointments, so on and so forth. And it was a lot of labor to it because a lot of times it was stairs. So I would have to take people up and down stairs and wheelchairs. And so I, I told myself, I said, I can't do this for too long. But I was working 50, 60 hours a week um, because, you know, I was still about the money. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was like, I can't do this for too long. Wind up, I got married like a year out of jail. And I was working, trying to take care of my family. And basically, I was like, I have to do something. You know, I mean, I can't keep doing this, but I'm not going to be able to get a real job, which is felony, with a felony on my back now. So what can I do to deflect from this felony? I was like, it dawned on me. I was always smart. Go back to school. So at least I would have, um, I would have, you know I mean, a, a degree to deflect away from this felony. So I enrolled to a community college. Um, and I was, did quite well. Um, I was about to graduate, and the professor asked me, he was like, hey, Arthur, what are you gonna do after you graduate with your associates? You know what I mean, you're doing well. And I had like a 3.7 GPA. And I was like, well, I told him, I said, well, I always wanted to be an attorney, but I can't. And he was like, what you, what you mean you can't? Why can't you be an attorney? And you know, I felt comfortable enough to tell him I had like three classes with him um, while I was at this community college. And I said, uh, his name is Professor Grabner. I said, well, Professor Grabner, I'm going to get the felon. You know, I did, you know, two and a half years, almost three years in federal prison. Um, you know, I, I can't be an attorney. And he was basically, he said, are you sure about that? And this is something I tell everybody, don't assume anything. Because I assume that I couldn't. Yeah. But he said, let me check into it for you. So I said, okay. So comes back to me two weeks later and he says, um, you have to have good news for you to have bad news. And I said, well, what's the good news? He said, well, the good news is that there's not an absolute bar of, to become an attorney in New York State with a felony. It's discretionary. It's up to this character and fitness committee, which is comprised of local lawyers and judges, and they can, they'll tell you whether or not that you're fit to practice law in New York State. I said, okay, so what's the bad news? He said, well, the bad news is that there's no way you can know beforehand whether they're going to tell you yes yeah. or no. So you got to do all the pre-steps and get to this character, this committee. And when you get there, they can tell you no. So you're going to have to get your, 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 your bachelor's. You're going to have to go to law school, get your juris doctorate. You're going to have to take the New York State Bar and pass it. Then go in front of this committee, and which this process is going to take seven to eight years. And then at the end of the seven to eight years, you get in front of this character and fitness committee and they can tell you no. Wow. What are you going to do? <laughs> so my whole thing was that I was trying to put some letters behind my name to deflect from this felony. So worst case scenario is I would be a law school graduate with a Jewish doctor. 
And you know what I mean? I could, you know what I mean? I was, surely I could find some gainful employment, you know what I mean, with a JD. So what did I have to lose? So um, I told him, yeah, you know what I mean? I, I want to try. So um, along the way, you know what I mean? He wrote letters of recommendation for me to get into UB, um, to get my, my bachelor's. Um, I didn't get into UB law school, which is the only local law school here. Um, so I wind up doing my first year of law school in Cleveland. And I couldn't afford an apartment. So Cleveland is like three hours away from Buffalo. So I would drive back and forth from Cleveland to Buffalo like three, four times a week. Wow. And stay. I would stay in a motel overnight and then drive back for the weekend. It was like, it was like back, I couldn't afford an apartment. And so I, I had gas money. <laughs> yeah. So my first semester at Cleveland State, I drove back and forth. Now, what happened was, I, I couldn't study because I was driving three, yeah. like some days, six hours. I, I would get up six o'clock in the morning in Buffalo to make it to my nine o'clock class in Cleveland and then stay there and then have to drive back to Buffalo that night in another three hours. I didn't have to get up, you know what I mean, to drive back to Cleveland the next day for class. Yeah. I couldn't, when was I supposed to study? So my first semester in Cleveland, I had three D's and C and I was about to flunk out of law school. So, I was able to borrow some money from a family member second semester and I got a part. So second semester I did pretty well, got like three B's and stuff and a C. But my whole thing was I was trying to transfer back to UB for the for my last two years. But after my first semester, I was like, UB is not gonna take me with these D's and stuff. So ironically, that summer, um, I got a job as an intern for a Buffalo City Court judge. And this was like in the criminal division. So now here I am a convicted felon working for a Buffalo City Court judge. Um, <laughs> I might be recognizing some of the same people you interacted with before. <laughs> wait, wait a minute, that's, and that's the funny story because one day I was sitting on the, the judge was like sitting in the middle, the clerk was sitting next to her and I was sitting on the end. And this girl from my neighborhood came in front of the judge and she recognized me. And so she's trying to talk to me while the judge is talking to her. And so I see her, I'm like, I hope this girl don't start saying something to me. She like, psst, psst, yo, T, And the judge is like, uh, ma'am, pay attention, pay attention. It was a lady judge. Yeah. And she like, the judge started talking to her. As soon as, as, soon as the judge started talking, she's talking about, and the girl in the, in, the, in the defendant that was in front of her talking about, yo, T, I need your number. I need your number in court. Yeah. And so the judge turns to me and says, go on the back, go on the back. <laughs> so <laughs> she made me go on the back. So, yeah, so I, I did that, and I wind up being able to transfer um, to UB. The judge helped me along with some other people. So I did my last two years of law school um, at UB. Um, I did quite well there. I got voted to president of the Black Law Student Association there. While, while you're, if I can, just one question. While this is going on sure. and, and you got the recommendation from the judge to help you out and everything, are you telling people of your situation or are you just hoping for the best and not really letting anybody know the secret? Everything is on a need-to-know basis. Okay, okay. So, of course, of course, I told the judge. Yeah. You know what I mean? I want no egg on her face. Yeah. So, it's like if somebody was, I encountered somebody, and I was going to work with them or do something with them, okay. then I would let them know because okay. I didn't want them to be blindsided. Yeah, yeah. So, and as a matter of fact, the judge where I got the internship from, she knew, she was a friend of my wife's family. 
And she was like giving me the internship before she kind of knew what was going on. And I'm like, Judge, Judge, hold on, hold on, hold on. I got to tell you something. Yeah, yeah, She's yeah. like, what? I'm like, I'm a convicted felon. And she was like, well, don't, she basically told me, don't tell nobody else on sort of need to know basis. Okay. And that, you know what I mean? As you go along, you know what I mean? You would kind of decipher who needs to know who and who doesn't need to know. So um, um, after that, after um, doing law school, I got a um, job working for the city of Buffalo Law Department as a, as a clerk, as a law clerk there. Um, so I, of course, then I had to tell the mayor. So I had to let the mayor know because I, now I was working for the mayor. Um, and after I graduated, um, I took the bar and I failed the bar the first time by three points. And so, um, and I, cause I couldn't type and I, I got frustrated and stuff. And then I took it again six months later I passed the bar, and and the ironic part is, as a, I got hired as attorney for the city of Buffalo, and I did civil litigation defense for the city of Buffalo and for the board of Ed. Now, and the funny part is, civil defense was for the departments of the city of Buffalo, which includes what, sanitation, um, board of Ed, fire department, yeah, police department. So here you have a convicted felon now doing civil defense for the police department. Yeah. And so, and, 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 and to me, it gave me kind of a heads up because a lot of times, you know what I mean? People that's not kind of street savvy, you know what I mean? Just believe like cross the board that all police officers don't lie and stuff yeah, yeah. like that. And so I had a conversation with one of the other attorneys that in the law department, and he was like, well, you don't, why you don't believe the police officer? I was like, cause I, I don't. I said, I've had police officers plant drugs on me before. He was like, really? Mm-hmm. He couldn't fan? I was like, yes. I was like, I had some police officer put drugs in my body. I mean, you know what I'm saying? So I don't believe, you know what I mean? That's just because he's an officer that he doesn't lie. So that, this is, so doing civil defense, that gave me sometimes I would tell my boss, look, I don't know if the police officer is really, cause I had like police brutality cases. I had, um, you know what I mean? With police officers beating up the defendants and stuff like that. And um, like car accidents with police officers involved and stuff. So sometimes I would be like, I think we need to settle this. You know what I'm saying? I don't really believe that the officer is being 100. So I did that for like four years and then I resigned and opened up my own criminal law, law practice. So that's what I'm doing now. I've been practicing um, criminal law for the last four years um, here in Buffalo. Um, and it gives me, you know, like I said, I, I can, I'm truly, I can actually tell the, my, my clients, I know what you're going through. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what I mean? As opposed to another attorney, like, oh, don't worry about it. And then they'd be like, oh, well, you don't know what's, what's going on. Yeah. And they can't tell me that. And for the most part, you know, a lot of my clients, they haven't done half what I've done. And, and, I, and I also even encourage them, like, I, I'm like, look, I was once in your position. Look at me now. You can turn your life around. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? I'll give them a copy of my book. Um, I wrote a book called Felon Attorney. Um, and that was one reason why um, I resigned as, a, um, as attorney for the city of Buffalo. Um, like once the story was out and, yeah. and I was doing a lot of speaking engagements, 
um, with the with the book and kind of traveling and stuff and and doing a lot of motivational speaking. So I need to be on my own time. Yeah, I couldn't do that and then still work for the law department. So again, so the book came out. I had some pushback on the book too. I had you know people saying um, like, why would you want to put that story out there? Um, they, everybody don't need to know that. And I was like, that's absolutely 100% wrong. I was like, people need to know that there's a second chance that you can turn your life around that you can, you know, you just can't use your felony as an excuse not to be a productive citizen. Sure. It's going to be hard. I mean, we all make mistakes, but you just can't say, okay, I'm a felon. You know what I mean? My life is over. You know what I'm saying? No, you know what I mean? You can't, you can't do that. I mean, you owe yourself more, more than that. So that's why I wrote the book and I always say, God didn't bless me for me to, for the, for the keep it a secret. And basically, I mean, I tell people do the research. There's of course, as a felon, there's going to be some things you can't do, but look into it, see if it's discretionary. You know, I, mean, I have friends now that, you know I mean? It's a girl that she's a felon. She became a nurse and she's a felon. You know what I'm saying? I have, you know I mean? Other friends that there's other stuff that you can do. You just have to look into it and, you know what I mean? And just fight the fight and not, not give up. And then I also, you know I mean? Have to tell people that if you're in a position to write a letter of recommendation, to make a phone call for somebody. Of course, you want to vet the person to see if they're worthy of, of the letter recommendation of the phone call. But if you have that authority and you have the ability to get somebody a job so somebody can change their life around, make that phone call. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Do what you can do to help somebody turn, turn their life around. And so, I mean, so it's twofold. You know, you have the person that's trying to turn their life around, but at the second time, at the second time, you need somebody that's going to open that door and give somebody that opportunity. Yeah. So much of your journey, it's remarkable, but so much of it, you were dealing with uncertainty and you had to go in positive, optimistic, and, and not worrying about what might not happen. Instead, you're focused on what could happen. So exactly. during all those periods of years of uncertainty, how did you push through the doubt that just kind of overhung? Because probably in the back of your mind, it's like, why the heck am I doing this? Why am I driving three hours to Cleveland when it all could be for not? So how did you push through the uncertainty? Well, my faith in God. Mm -hmm. Um, I just wouldn't take no for an answer. I got three rejection letters from UB Lawson. So, um, um, I didn't get discouraged. I was like, I could do it. Um, something good is going to come out of it. And you know, I, I, I came too far, um, to give up. You know what I mean? I had a good support system. My, my wife was behind me 100%. Um, I mean, I just, I, I just wouldn't give up. Um, and, and, and basically it, it was always, always think, always had a backup plan to whatever I was trying to do. So it was like, well, if I don't get into this school, you know, I mean, I'm going to try this. If I don't, if I don't try this, I'm going to try that. So it was like, um, even if I didn't get into UB law school, um, I could do one year as a visiting student. So that that way I didn't have to spend a whole nother year away from my family. So it was always, always looked into something else, always making phone calls, always having a conversation, trying to put myself around, you know what I mean, the right people. Uh, you know what I'm saying? And I always tell, you know, I tell people, don't, you know what I mean, don't let anybody just kind of, don't be afraid of anything. I mean, the worst thing they can tell you is no. I went to a... Um, a party by, for um, 
a, a similar New York State Assemblywoman. Um, and I got three jobs there. That's where I met the mayor. I met a New York State Assemblywoman and I met a Buffalo City Councilman. And I went up to all three individuals and I talked to them and basically, and I, and I got three jobs out of that. And basically, and my thing was after what I went through with going to jail and surviving and all that, can't nobody intimidate me. It's like even with judges, you know what I mean? I, no judge is gonna intimidate me. I respect them, but I'm not intimidated by anything. And so I'm gonna come to you and I'm gonna talk to you and I'm gonna ask you if you say no. I'm gonna go on, and then I'm gonna find find another way. My, my friend, who's my my best friend, he's a trademark attorney um, down in Dallas. Um, he's like my brother, Ray Thomas. He always say circumvent the process. So it's like if you can't go in a straight line, we go go around you. But we're gonna get the result that I mean that we that we want, and we just we're not gonna give up. Yours is a great tale of reinvention, and people who reinvent themselves often have to forget about the past, but you're living it. You know, you know, people still around it. Like you said, people are still trying to get at you even after you were released. So how did you go about just forgetting the negative and the old life that you want to get away with? Well, again, I had to separate myself. Um, the funny part is um, I still, I kind of, I moved out of the neighborhood. I'm about 30 minutes outside of Buffalo in the suburbs, but I go to church in my old neighborhood. Okay. So I'm down there and I'm a deacon there. And so I'm down there in my old neighborhood and my mother moved back from Los Angeles to Buffalo. So she lives in my old neighborhood. Oh. My grandfather's still still family in those five houses down in my old neighborhood. So I got to go down there to see my mother, my aunt, cousins. So, you know what I mean? I got to a point that now it don't affect me because I'm a licensed attorney now. But, but at a time I had to separate myself you know what I mean? And so I got where I needed to be because any like mark on my record while I was, you know what I mean? Going through this process would stop me from becoming an attorney. Yeah. So once I got to that character and fitness committee, if I would have got in trouble during that eight months, they were like, Oh no, nah, yeah. he's still doing this. Yeah. He's still hanging in old neighborhood. He's still getting in trouble. So on and so forth. Cause I got out of jail and I, I was on parole for five years. Um, then, you know, I went in front of the character and fitness committee and at first, um, you know, we, we I, I went to the character and fitness committee and whether they was going to let me practice law, practice law or not. And, um, I went in the, the room with the guy and he was like, um, he was like the Arthur. Um, so I had a spiel for all the times I've been arrested. I was just waiting for him to ask me all these questions. And so he was like the Arthur. Um, you turn your life around. Um, I'll, I'll, you know, I mean, if it's up to me, I will say yes and let you practice. But since you have a felony, you're going to have to go in front of the whole character fitness committee and they're going to have to decide. So he told me to go back in the room. And um, so I'm like, yeah, so I'm sitting there with my little my Bible. And then there's a guy behind me. They told him to wait too. He's talking to another guy and he had a, um, like a dis disorderly conduct arrest he had a law school he's worried about i'm like this guy's worried about disorderly conduct <laughs> i just want to turn around and like smack him like if he, yeah. if he only knew what i'm yeah. worried about yeah so but they, they called me back and instead of seeing the whole character and fitness committee the same guy called me back into the room he said the arthur 
we, the character and fitness committee talked about your situation, what you've done was a long time ago, you changed your life. Because once I got to the character and fitness committee, I had a letter from my pastor, I had a letter from my, my boss at the law department of the city of Buffalo, I had a letter from judges. You know, I had all these people write me letters. So basically during that seven to eight years, I had a mass enough relationship with people that would vouch for me that they all wrote letters from me when I got foot in the character and fitness committee. And that's how I was able to get my my license to practice. But you know, back to the original question, I had to be like, no, I'm not going there. You know what I'm saying? Like at the midst of like my friend turning 40, he's giving a party, can't go. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Where is it? Can't go. You know what I'm saying? Anything can happen. You know what I'm saying? Can't go. I'm too close. Can't go. My wife like, no, you can't go. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, and the funny part was once I got to law school, um, like I wanted to go hang out with my friends from law school. My wife was like, go ahead. Cause they were safe. They were safe. And I'm like, Oh, okay. You know what I'm saying? But if it had something to do with anybody from the old neighborhood yeah. or a friend, it was like, no, I couldn't go. It was like, I was like, I could lie at the sneak, but I, you know, I couldn't get in trouble. I was too close. So I had to like, it, you, it takes a whole lot of discipline. Yeah. It does. The, you know what I mean? The, basically I had to separate myself. It was like, I had to be disciplined. Like, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to sit in this house and be bored until I get where I got to go. And so now after I became an attorney, I went out there, hang out, talk to the young guys. Like, look, you can change your life. This and that. I'll be standing around talking to them while they smoke weed and stuff and this and that. And they ask me for my business card and like be asking questions and stuff. And I'm like, yo, you can, you can change your life around. You can do this, do that. And so now, you know, they look up to me, you know what I mean, in a different manner. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I need them to look at, look at me like, okay, we knew him when he was selling drugs. Look at him now. So I, I need my success to be bigger and better than when I was selling drugs. I need to, my, my car, my truck needs to be nicer than it was when I was selling drugs yeah. to show them, you know what I mean, how you can do better on the legal side. And yeah. I ain't got to worry about the police pulling me over. I ain't got to worry about, you know what I mean, looking over my shoulder. You know what I'm saying? I ain't got to worry about nothing now because I'm doing everything legally. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I ain't got to worry about being robbed. I don't have $5,000 in my pocket. My money's in bank. You know what I'm saying? If you run up on me right now, I probably I probably got like three dollars in my pocket. You know what I'm saying? Because everything is in the bank and I got credit cards and stuff. Yeah. So they need to see they need to see that. You know what I mean? I set a bad example for that neighborhood. Now I'm trying to set another example. And yeah. even going down there, there's like all these like sh- like blocks with no houses on, abandoned houses and open fields and stuff. And sadly. I, I, I can drive down the street and I say, so-and-so, so used to live here. Yeah. Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, this used to be their house. It's not there anymore. And I know I used to sell them drugs. So I feel partly responsible. Or did their grandson or son start selling drugs too? Because they used to see me on the corner selling drugs and they wanted to be like me. So now being able to go to church down there, and being a deacon down there and going down there two, three times a week interacting, it gives me an opportunity to give back and, you know what I mean, and show them a different side of me and an example of what they can be because now is no excuse. Because now they can't say, well, I can't do it because I'm from this neighborhood. Well, yeah. I'm from this neighborhood. Yeah. Well, I can't do it because I'm a felon. Well, I'm a felon. 
I can't do it because I got a wife and kids. I did it with a wife and kids. Yeah. So now there's no excuses. You can't come to me and say, you, I can't do it because of this, because I've done it. Yeah. You know what I mean? So now you can't give me no excuse. Yeah. I, I love your determination. And along the way, it's been a lot of people who've helped you out. You were around a group of men that helped you out and probably motivated you as well. You're a member of the oldest and the coldest Alpha Phi Alpha. Being part of that historic organization, how did that inspire you along the way? Yeah, that's actually something um, new. I'm a, I'm a member of the graduate chapter. So um, my fraternity, the fraternities now, they allow you to do a postgraduate um, alumni chapters. So I'm actually, I've actually just been an alpha for like for a year and a half now. So I wasn't um, alpha like doing, doing this process. Okay. It's something that I always wanted to do. And again, it was another, <clears throat> another thing, just like becoming a lawyer, I didn't know I'd be, become a, I could become a lawyer as a felon. And then I found out I didn't, I didn't know I could become an alpha as an alumni as, in the graduate chapter. So, um, you know, a, a, few of the, a few of the bros, you know, they came at me. They was like, um, you ever thought about pledging? And I'm like, pledging? I'm not, I'm 50 years old. And, you know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> yeah, I'm college. I'm in the college and, and I'm, you know what I mean? I'm a, I'm a non-traditional student. I graduated from, I graduated from, um, from UB undergrad. I was 40, what, 40, I graduated in 08. So I was already like 30, 39 years old anyways, you know what I mean, as a, as an undergrad, so I was always not traditional, anyways. But then I found that I can become in the fraternity as, as an alumni chapter, so I joined um, like about a year and a half ago. So um, I mean, that's been an experience. Um, there's a lot of good brothers out there, and so my thing was what I was doing. I was doing it by myself, you know, working in the community, trying to do some mentoring and helping people out. Then I. I get, you know what I mean, now I'm in a fraternity and everything, we all do it. And we, you know what I mean, we do you know, drives, food drives and, and help out the community and stuff like that. So now I'm around some like, like, like brothers that's like, you know what I mean, thinking the same way I'm thinking and trying to do the same thing I'm doing, trying to help the community and trying to, trying to better, you know, my, you know what I mean, the, the people in the community and, and do better things. I'm sure that inspires you and you inspire them. It's probably reciprocal on that, just in that bond that you have. This has been awesome. This has been a wonderful conversation. Tell me how people can get the book and how else they can find more information about you. The book, I have a website, um, www.felon-attorney.com. Mm -hmm. um, you can order it off of that. I'll send you a signed copy. Um, also, you can find me on Facebook. Um, that's the Arthur Tone Duncan. Uh, you can inbox me. I'm on Instagram as the Arthur ESQ. Um, LinkedIn, the Arthur Duncan. Um, where else? This you can inbox me. Um, people inbox me all the time. I get I get probably about ten questions a week about being a felon and becoming an attorney and whether they can become an attorney in their state. I try to point them in the right direction. Um, so you know I'm, I'm accessible again. Instagram, Facebook, um, my website. Um, this is a copy of the book right here. Felon attorney. Um, I left a, you know, I mean, during during our talk, I left a lot of stuff out. Um, uh, the book is good. I mean, it's it's not because I wrote it, but it's it's funny. <laughs> it's a great story. Uh, a yeah. lot of yeah, a lot of stuff that happened like this. You know, there's a lot of sad stuff, 
Um, I almost got killed probably about three times. Um, I talk about um, my friend getting killed standing next to me, my brother getting shot, and my cousin getting shot standing next to me. And the only reason why I didn't get shot is because I jumped to the left instead of the right. Yeah. If I would have jumped to the right instead of the left, I probably would be here today. Um, I got scars on my head. I got beat with a pool stick, with a bat. Um, these are things that, you know what I mean, I encountered while I was out in the streets um, doing stuff that I, you know what I mean, I wasn't supposed to be doing. And so, I mean, those were the fruits of what, you know what I mean, the, the trees I was planting. I was planting bad, bad seeds, so I was getting bad fruit. Um, but I survived. Um, kind of outlined that in, in the book, um, kind of how, you know I mean, I changed my life. Um, you know what I mean? Things that I went through, uh, the process of, you know I mean, becoming an attorney, so on and so forth. Um, and, oh, and the funny part is I, I don't want to leave this out. So um, I got licensed to practice law in New York State when I went to the character fitness committee. However, federal courts are totally different. So you have to be admitted also in federal court. So I had been admitted into state court for three years and I want to start practicing federal court. So in federal court, you have to go in front of a judge and make an application to get admitted in, in, into federal court. And you get to pick the judge that you want to go in front of. Oh, I, lo I love where this is going. I love where this is going. <laughs> exactly. So I picked the judge that sentenced me to federal prison Love it. to make my application to get into the practice in the federal court. And did he remember you? Oh, wait. Yeah. And I also, you have to get a sponsoring attorney. So my defense, I asked my defense attorney who defended me in my case to be my sponsoring attorney. So here we have 15 years later, the judge that put me in federal prison for 46 months, my Self and my defense attorney now my um, sponsoring attorney back in front of the same judge and I'm asking the judge to admit me to practice in the federal court and he embraced it <sighs> he embraced it when I called his chambers and I and I made the appointment for the for the mission to go in front of the judge I asked the um and I called I had to send in the application and then I called to get the date and I asked the, the judge's clerk, does the judge know who I am? And the, and the clerk was like, yes, the Arthur. He definitely knows who you are. <laughs> so so um, I went back in front of him and they had, they had did a, a, like a three page article on, my, on me in the, in the front of the Buffalo news um, prior to that. And he had the article um, and he read from the article and he embraced it and he um i guess you know it's you know they don't that's that that's that's very rare for you know what i mean he, he he's able to say you know what i mean i sent it to this guy and look he changes you know what I mean? he changed his life on him and about six months after that i was the um the keynote speaker at, at ub law school and he was in attendance so um so while i'm up there speaking i said and i said and then and I say, then the judge scrapped me. He put me in jail for 46 months and I point at him. This was a room of about 500 people. He's sitting at a table and everybody turns around and looks at him. And I'm like, don't worry. It's a, We're it's cool a, now. It's a, yeah. yeah, it's a good ending to the story. <laughs> so, and, 
And the thing is, another thing I tell people is now he's a, a close friend of mine. Okay. I mean, who who you know have their sentencing judge's cell number? Yeah. That you know what I mean? I can go on my phone and call him on the phone. I'm like, hey judge, how's it going? It's the Arthur. Yeah. This guy put me in jail for 46 months. Now he's the friend. Now he's somebody I can call. He calls me like the Arthur, I need you to go talk to this person. I need you to do this speaking event. Yeah. So you know what I mean? We're friends. Yeah. And and, and and that's crazy. It just shows you what can happen when you change your life around. You know what I'm saying? And you, you start doing things and, and start doing positive things and stuff, and you build up a track record. The same way you build up a track record of doing bad things, now you build up a track record of good, doing good things, and people will start trusting you. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And, and a lot of times, I mean, the sky's the limit. I was going to run for judge um, last, this year, but I got sick. And then COVID came, then I got sick. And then I had to, like, I live in the suburbs, and I was going to run for Buffalo City Court Judge. And because of the COVID and me getting sick, I wasn't able to move. So, and then because you have to be a resident of, of, of the city of Buffalo to run yeah. for City Court Judge. But people was like, you were, I mean, you if you run, you're going to win. You know what I'm saying? So it's something that I might do in the future. But it's like the sky is the limit because basically now, you know, I've you know changed my life to, to that extent that, you know what I mean, now people are trusting me and, and I always say, I can't mess this up for nobody. Yeah. Because if I if I mess up, they're going to be like, well, we remember the Arthur, we, we, we gave him a chance and he messed it up. Yeah. So now we can't yeah. do it no more. So okay. I can't mess this up for nobody. You know, the per somebody that's coming after me with a felony and, and they want to become a judge, they have to be able to rely on me. I got to pull them through and be like, okay, I did it this way. You need to call this person. You need to do this. You need to do this. You need this. I need to pull them through. And so then, then the next person can come. You know what I'm saying? So I can't mess this up for no. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Much appreciation to the Arthur. What an incredible story. Highly encourage you to pick up his book and pick it up. You can check it out at felon-attorney.com. My new book, Curiosity, is currently available on Amazon. Curiosity celebrates the knowledge that strangers have to offer. Everyone has unique expertise and endless wisdom awaits the perpetually curious. Featuring 200 episodes from the Any Given Runway show, Curiosity explores the diverse lives of athletes, adventurers, and performers. From daring voyages across the Atlantic to unforgettable performances in the West End, Curiosity celebrates the sophisticated thing we call life. Everyone has a story. Each person is a scholar. Thank you for listening. Fill up that passport. I'll see you on the road. Aviento. Aviento.